Now let's open our Bibles, if you would, to our text again. We listen to our King's voice. Glad our King's not silent, aren't you? So let's turn to the Gospel of John again. John chapter 21. John 21. You turn there if you would. And again, if you're using the Bibles provided for you, that's page 907. Page 907. This is the final message in a series we've been involved in called A Personal Reformation. Follow me. A Personal Reformation. We are focusing on reformation this year. Uh, we're going to continue to do that in some coming weeks because this is the 500th anniversary of what's generally thought of as the beginning of the Great Reformation, also known as the Protestant Reformation. As you know, it was on October 31st, uh, All Saints' Eve, or Hallowed Eve, that Martin Luther in 1517, Roman Catholic monk, in protest against the teaching by the church about salvation by works, buying of indulgences for people to be delivered out of purgatory, Martin Luther nailed 95 statements, 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, stating why. That was absolutely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with the pounding of those nails, that was the sounding, as many think, of the beginning of what we know as the Reformation. Though it really was not a new thing, it was a return to the old gospel uh, that did not begin in the 16th century or did not begin in the 15th century. It began in the heart of God, right? God's grace. The gospel of free grace, apart from works, freely given to all who believe in Jesus. That is the gospel. And that gospel was uh, rediscovered in some ways, and we're grateful for that uh, reformation. We'll continue thinking about reformation. It's on my heart for us to reform Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the lost holiday. Do you know that? So we're going to reform it this year. Here and we're going to talk about true Thanksgiving, and then won't be long. We'll be in the Christmas season. Can you believe that? And uh, some of the stores are already showing uh, Christmas decorations, and that's the reason we need to reform Christmas in our minds, because it's about the Messiah, not materialism. It's about the gift of God, and so we will have a season of in this Reformation year that we'll talk about reforming Christmas in our lives and reforming Thanksgiving. But this morning, we want to talk about a personal Reformation because what good is it if we understand the historical significance of the great Reformation, but it's not a present and personal reality in our lives. And many times that reformation means literally a reforming to the plan that the Lord has for us, a reformation of ourselves to his path in following him. And there is no greater passage we could look at this morning than the one where we have read in John chapter 21, because truly there was a man who had lost his way. I heard a quote one time about uh, Daniel Boone, uh, he was said to have said this. He was asked once if 
he had ever been lost out in the wilderness of Kentucky. And he said, no, I, I was never lost. I was mighty confused for three or four days, but I was never lost. <laughs> Most experienced pathfinders lose the path sometimes. And disciples lose the path of following Jesus. But what is so wonderful about our Lord is when we lose our path, he comes, finds us, right? To get us back on that path to following him because he loves us too much to let us go astray and comes finding us. He comes finding wandering disciples. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning as we look at this chapter and we look at Peter who Jesus said to Peter, in effect, follow me again. Follow me Again, Now, this is a beautiful story. The reason I felt like we had to read the entire chapter because it's one great unit. In many ways, it's like a, a, a play. It's like a play of, of personal restoration. It's about Peter and his personal restoration. And there's really three scenes in this play that give us three great lessons, not just for Peter, but for us as well. So I want us to look at the passage this morning that way. Three scenes that are in this story and three great lessons. Now, the first scene in the first lesson is a lesson about fulfillment, a lesson about fulfillment, because the story opens here with anything but fulfillment. It's a story of frustration. It's a scene of frustration. And we hear that in Peter's voice when he stands up and says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now, one reason that Peter is frustrated is because he's been asked by the Lord, as the other disciples have, he's been asked to do the thing that he hates to do more than anything else, and that is to wait. He's not a waiting around kind of guy, not Peter. He's a man of action, a man of doing, and he's been asked to wait. And then also he's been asked to wait in the most difficult place he could be asked to wait, and that's by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And his whole life goes back to those shores. And it's an incredible time of year. It's late March or early April. Sun shining perhaps, puffy clouds. And it's just like the lapping of the water it is, is speaking to Peter. It, it's calling him back. It's calling him back to life before all the revolutionary change that happened three years ago. It's calling him back to what he knows, fishing, what he understands. It's calling him back away from Jerusalem and all that happened there and things that he wants to forget. It's, it's calling him back away from questions. What does this mean that Jesus is raised? What now? Wouldn't it just be easier to go back? And he stands up and says, I'm going fishing. And when he says that, he's not just talking about a night of fishing, but I'm, I'm going back. I'm back to where I know what I'm doing. And when he says that, there are Six echoes. <laughs> me too, me too, me too. Because we're told that there were seven disciples, counting Peter. 
Now, we're only given the names of five of them. Did you notice that? That's interesting. There's seven, but there's only five of them that are named. Why? Why are the other two not named, and who are they? Well, a lot of people say you can't know, but in my humble but very accurate opinion, <laughs> I, I think I know. I'll tell you why. I think the two disciples are unnamed just, just for us so that you and me can see ourselves in the story. See, the Lord wants to put us right in the middle of this story. Well, it's a frustrating scene, and it even gets more frustrating. Because they go out and they fish, and they fish and catch nothing. And if there's anything worse or more frustrating, some of you know, than fishing all day and catching nothing, the only thing worse is fishing all night and catching nothing. And so these men fish all night. And it's not just throwing out, you know, throw the bobber out. No, 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 no. I've, I've seen this demonstrated over in Galilee. They pick up a, a good-sized net, and they, it's heavy with water, and they swing it around their, their heads, and they throw it out. It's a very strenuous activity. And here are these men all night long swinging this net, throwing it out time and time and time again, and every time it comes back, in the same condition it went out, empty, nothing. Now you talk about symbolizing frustration. This is frustration. Because here are these men, they're using all of their personal ingenuity. Oh, they got a great idea. Let's go fishing. It's their idea. They've got all kinds of personal ability. These guys know what they're doing. They are experts. They're trained. And all kinds of personal activity. I mean, this is seven men all night long. This is 70 to 80 hours of work cumulatively. And these men, with all of their personal ingenuity, with all of their personal activity, with all of their personal ability, not one fish. Empty nets. You know who is seated, seated here this morning? There are some folks here in this room this morning. Truth be told, your nets are empty. Not for lack of ability. You have ability. Not for lack of ingenuity. You have had some great ideas. And not for lack of activity, because you've worked your plan. But your nets are empty. You know what? That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. You know why? Because that makes you a candidate. It makes you a candidate to have a carpenter tell you how to fish. And that carpenter is Jesus. And he knows some things about fishing. Matter of fact, he knows all the fish by name. Now, that's not the way Jesus starts. No, he doesn't start by just coming in and saying, 
Here, let me take care of your need. No, 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 it's not what he does. <laughs> you know what he does? He does the worst thing you can do to a fisherman who has fished all night and caught nothing. What's the worst thing someone can do? Hey, fellas, caught anything? No. Then there's only one worse thing than to ask a fisherman if he's caught anything who's caught nothing is for you to tell a professional fisherman how to do it. Hey, cast out on the right side. You'll bring some in. Oh, there's words going through their mind. You know that. <laughs> They may be saying words, not Sunday words. <laughs> what's Jesus doing? You know, what's, you know what, in vernacular, you know what Jesus is doing? He's walking, literally, he's coming up to these frustrated fishermen. And in the vernacular, we'd say today, how's that working for you? Oh, you got a plan. Going fishing, huh? Oh, you're experts, right? Yeah. And you're very active. How's that working for you? How's that five-year plan coming? Yeah, that, that bright idea. How's that working for you? Now, does Jesus do that to be harsh? No, he's not doing it to be harsh because he wants them to understand that fulfillment is not going to come by their activity. Fulfillment is not going to come by their ingenuity. Fulfillment is not going to come by their ability. It's going to come as they receive it as a gift from him. That's where they'll find fulfillment. Now, these men have learned this before, but they've got to relearn it. Have you ever had to relearn something? Have you ever had to retake something? I remember when I went to college, your first semester at college, you had to take English grammar and you had to get a C in it. And if you didn't get a C in it, you're going to take it again until you got a C. And I had completely ignored English grammar all my high school years. I could care less. Who cares about English grammar when you can play football and basketball and baseball and date Susan? Who cares about that? Okay. And so that's the way I approached it. And I knew, I knew, I, I wouldn't have known an adjective if it had bit me on the leg. And I've got to get a C in this course. And you know what they call it? If you have to retake it in the dorms, they call the next course bonehead English. And I just knew I was probably going to major in bonehead English, or at least minor in it. I was going to have so many hours in it. But by God's grace and mercy, and it was that, I, I was able to get over a C and get out of that class. But you know what? There's been many times I've had bonehead discipleship, and I've had to learn lessons over and over and over again. Here is the lesson these fishermen have to learn. It's a lesson I like to call it the three F principle, the three F principle. They needed to learn it again and we need to learn it again. Here's what it is. The three F principle is this fulfillment is found in following Jesus. 
That's where fulfillment is found. Fulfillment is found in following Jesus, not your own bright idea, your own hard work, your own activity and ingenuity, but fulfillment is found in following Jesus. You know, the wisest man that ever lived had to find out that fulfillment is only found in following the Lord. Who's the wisest man that ever lived, according to the Bible? Isn't it King Solomon? He asked for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. There's never been one as wise as him, but with all of his wisdom... Yet he tried his own ingenuity and own activity and ability to find fulfillment. And he went for everything. He had the wisdom and the money to do it all. And he tried everything that the world had to offer to bring peace into his heart and fulfillment. And he said, as I did this year after year, it was like chasing the wind. When I got my hand around it, it was gone. He said, I found that life was just all vanity when you tried to live that way. Actually wrote a book about it. He wrote a book about his midlife crisis. It's in the Bible. What's it called? The book of Ecclesiastes. And when he comes to the end of the book, he says, let me tell you what I've learned. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Here's what King Solomon said. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, that is reverence and love toward God. Practice keeping his commandments This is the whole duty of man. Because if you try to reach for anything to bring fulfillment, you'll find out what King Solomon found out. He said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Isn't that interesting? What's that mean? It means there's a God-sized hole in each one of us. Every one of us has been created in his image. There's a good book to help you understand that. You've been created in his image. And it means that you have a God-sized hole in your heart. And no matter how active or ingenious, no matter how much ability you put into anything, there is no thing, there is no person that can fill God's sized hole in your heart. Only God can Only God can do that. See, fulfillment, listen carefully, church. Fulfillment is not an accomplishment. Fulfillment is a gift. Jesus said, I've come with a purpose. John 10, 10, he said, I have come that they might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. Some of you here this morning, you're listening to the lie of the devil, and sometimes it's coming to you through television, movie, radio, internet, maybe coming through friends. And the lie is this, that if you surrender your life to Jesus, you're not going to have any fun. If you surrender your life to Jesus, oh yeah, 
You'll serve him, but you'll never enjoy it. My friend, that is exactly what Jesus is not. Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. He said, I've come that you might have joy and it'll be overflowing joy in your life. Time and time again in the Bible, you know what we see? People who bring something so little and so small to the Lord and he fills it full. Remember Jesus' first miracle? They brought him empty water jars. You remember this? And what did he give to them? He filled them with water and then turned that into the best of wine. A little boy brought Jesus his box lunch one day. <laughs> Can you imagine his eyes when he saw his box lunch turn into a smorgasbord to feed 5,000 and more, and 12 baskets full. I can just imagine, I've always imagined this little boy coming home with a cart full of these baskets going, Mom, honest, I'm telling the truth. Honest, I'm, I'm not making this up. Moses, when he was standing before God, what did Moses have? You know, you know what Moses had? God said, I want you to lead one and a half million people out of bondage. I want you to go to the strongest empire on the face of the earth. And I want you to say to Pharaoh, who thinks he's a God, let my people go. Yeah, right. I can't. No, 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 no. I got, I got nothing. To, I got nothing for this, God. God says, what have you got in your hand? What? In your hand. What's that in your hand? Uh, it's uh, my walking stick. Throw it down in front of me. He threw it down in front of him. God told him to take it back up again. And you know what? It's never called Moses' walking stick ever again. You know what it's called from then on? The rod of God. All Moses needed was a piece of wood that God had empowered. He didn't need anything but a stick to bring the greatest nation in the earth to its knees. Amen. Little boy, all he had was a slingshot and a, shop and a harp. Just a, he had a harp that he played songs. He had a slingshot. He gave it to the Lord. God gave him a crown and a scepter. What was his name? David. God wants to take whatever you offer to him, whatever you offer to him, he will fill it full. You offer him your education, he will fill it full of wisdom. You offer him your business, he'll make it into a kingdom enterprise. You offer him your plans, and if you want to make the Lord laugh, just tell him your plan. <laughs> and he will give you a divine blueprint that'll blow your mind. You give him your relationships and he will give you people in your life that are closer than brothers and sisters and closer than could ever be because that relationship has become spiritual and holy. You give him your marriage and you see that if he can't make it, the grace of life, you give him your abilities and see that he can take your inabilities and use your nothing to do great things.
You take, <laughs> yes, you take your retirement, some of you. Give it to him. And your latter years will be filled with more fruit than you have ever known in your life. Jesus will fill you full. You know why? Because Jesus is fulfillment. That's the problem. Even when we're asking Jesus to meet our needs and our desires, what we don't understand is he is the one who fills our needs and our desires. Rather than ask for the blessing, and it's okay to ask for the blessing, just make sure, first of all, you want the blesser. One disciple in particular had to learn that, and that was Peter. He had to learn a lesson about fulfillment. And then, though, there's another lesson Peter had to learn. Look quickly, if you would. He had to learn a second lesson in this second scene of the story. He had to learn a lesson about failure. There's a lesson here about our failures. Now, John is the disciple who's the most perceptive. And when he sees this haul of fish coming up out of the water, John says in his mind, I've seen this happen before. This is deja vu. And then he thinks, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And Peter, he's not the most perceptive, but he is the most impulsive. And he dives in. He can't wait to get to Jesus. He dives in, sets a record for the 200 cubit freestyle as he swims. He forgets the fish and he swims like fish. And when Peter and others, now this is, listen, this is just about to get good. Don't drift off on me, okay? I know I've been stumbling around, but this is good. What were those fishermen after all night long? Fish. Worked themselves to death, got nothing. And when they got to the shore where Jesus was, what did they find? Fish. Not just fish, but a fish fry. Golden brown fillet. Biscuits, honey, and butter. That's in the Greek. You got to dig that out. Okay. <laughs> now you get this while they're out there <laughs> throwing the net, throwing the net. Jesus is on the shore. Shh. Wow. It's amazing. So they come to shore and they're enjoying the fish breakfast. They're on the shore, but listen, there's an elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. Something huge hasn't been dealt with yet. What is it? Peter's failure. Peter, a few nights back, has cursed and swore and denied that he even knows the Lord. And it hasn't been dealt with yet. The whole scene is wrapped around Peter. Maybe he thinks he's such a failure, he can't come back. Other people can go forward, but not me. But boy, he doesn't know his Lord's heart, does he? And isn't it beautiful what the Lord does? 
When did Peter really surrender himself to be a disciple? I mean, just broken, broken. When did he do that? There was a huge catch of fish. Do you remember this? A huge catch of fish and Peter pulled it in. He, he hadn't caught anything. And he pulled it in. Jesus had been borrowing his boat as a floating pulpit. And so Jesus is paying back Peter for the use of his boat with this huge catch of fish. When he pulls it in, he recognizes this man is the master of creation. He's the master of the fish. He tells the fish to swim in the net and they swim in my net. Who is this man in my boat with me? And he falls down at his feet and he says, oh Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He's broken. And the Lord right there in the boat says, Peter, I'm going to use you to catch men. Where did Peter's surrendered discipleship begin? In a boat full of fish. Where did Peter surrender his discipleship? At a charcoal fire, warming his hands with the enemies of the Lord, where he denied Jesus. You see what the Lord brings together? Huge catch of fish. In another charcoal fire, he's brought Peter right back where his life got started as a believer and where he has ruined it all by his sin. Now, Jesus speaks to him. Jesus always speaks. Listen carefully. Jesus always speaks with grace and truth because he's full of grace and truth. He always speaks with grace, but he always speaks with truth. And he speaks with such grace to Peter. He doesn't come in condemnation. He doesn't ridicule Peter in front of his fellow disciples. What does he do? He simply asks Peter a question. Same question three times. He asked him, look at verse 15. He said to him, Simon Son of John, he uses Peter's old name. He said, you're going to be Peter. I'm going to build the church on a rock like your testimony. But he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon because he's been acting like Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked him the same question, but three different ways. Do you love me more than these? And the word love is the word here, sacrificial love, agape, or the verb agapao. Do you love me with a sacrificial love more than these? Because remember, Peter, you said, though everybody would deny you, you wouldn't. Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter won't use the word for sacrificial love. He uses another word, phileo, which means a devoted love. We get our word Philadelphia from it. He's humble. He says, Lord, you know I'm devoted to you. Then the Lord asked him the question again. Peter, doesn't go on Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, he uses the word sacrificial love, agapao. And Peter says, Lord, you know I, I'm devoted to you, phileo. And then the third time, the Lord comes down to Peter's level. 
And the Lord says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses Peter's word. Phileo, are you really devoted to me? And Peter is so grieved because he knows why the Lord is asking him the same thing three times. He knows why he's changed the word. He knows why that he said, do you love me more than the rest of these men? Because he knows he has failed him. But in his heart, he can say, Lord, you know everything. You know in my heart, I'm devoted to you. I do love you. Jesus gave him a threefold commission. He said three commissions to him. He said, feed my lambs first time. That means the little tiny lambs. Then he said, tend shepherd my sheep the second time. And the third time he said, feed my sheep, which means take care of the whole flock, big fishermen. Take care of the little ones, pastor all of them, oversee my sheep. Peter, don't ever forget this. It's not about you. It's about my sheep. That's what it's all about. There's some things we need to consider here, folks. Because we need to be in this scene. We need to be by this charcoal fire. Here's the first thing. Number one, love for him is our Lord's first concern. Love for him is our Lord's first concern. The first thing the Lord is concerned about is not your doctrine. It's not your duty. It's your devotion. Doctrine is important. Doing your duty is important. But what the Lord wants to know that he has is your heart. Because if he has your heart, he'll take care of your duty and he'll take care of your doctrine but if he doesn't have your heart, then all of your Bible study is meaningless to him and useless to him. And if he doesn't have your heart, all of your duty for him is just hypocrisy because Jesus did not die for doctrine. He didn't die for duty. He died for you and me, sinners, that he might bring the love of God into our hearts and we might know him. And that's his first consideration. May God help us this morning that that's our first concern. May we not be people who are first concerned about doctrine and duty before we're concerned about devotion to Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, folks, some of us have gotten cold hearted because we're trying to hug a doctrine. And you were never called to hug a doctrine. You were called to embrace Jesus. And it's the Jesus of this book. And if you've been here long, you know I believe this book. I believe every bit of it. <laughs> I'm like the one preacher. I believe it. I believe it from concordance all the way to maps. I believe the whole thing. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. Knowing this book is not the same as knowing the author of the book. And we can get very cold, even very close to the Bible. How I know. Our Lord's first concern is love for him. Our Lord's first qualification 
Love for him is our Lord's first qualification. Did you notice what he didn't say to Peter? He didn't say, Peter, are you sorry? Are you really, 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 really sorry? He didn't say, Peter, are you not going to do this again? Will you never, 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 never do this again? No. What did he ask him? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? It's his first qualification. The first qualification for serving Jesus, friends, is loving Jesus. And love for him, thirdly, is demonstrated in caring for others. Loving him is demonstrated in caring for others. He said, I want you to take care of my sheep. He's saying to, he's saying to Peter what he's saying to us. He is saying, listen, it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about them. Folks, you want to live your life accurately. It's about him and them. Life is about him and them. Who are the them? Anybody God brings into you, your circle of influence that you can bear witness of the love of Christ. That's the them. And if you live every day thinking my life's about him and them. Oh, wow. What a compass that is. Last scene. And I can only touch on this. The first scene gives us a lesson about fulfillment. The second scene gives us a lesson about our failures. And the third scene gives us a lesson about our future. Our future. Jesus told Peter his future. <laughs> he didn't say, Peter, stick out your hand. I'm going to do a reading. No, but he told him his future. Right there. He looked forward about 35 years. Said, let me tell you where you're going, Peter. Here it is, verse 18. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. You're the big fisherman. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. John wrote this after Peter was dead. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What's he telling Peter? He says, Peter, I'm telling you. There'll be a day you'll stretch out your hands. Some men will put their your garments on you. They're going to tie you up. They're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And we know from church history what that was, that Peter was led outside the walls of Rome and he was crucified. He didn't believe himself worthy to be crucified like his master. So at his last moment, he asked his executioners to turn him upside down. That's how Peter died. And Jesus said, you're going to go where you don't want to go. Now, Peter was not afraid of death. The letter he wrote in our Bible a few weeks, perhaps, before his death is 2 Peter. And he says, my exodus is drawing near. I'm just about out of here. He didn't fear death, but it's the process. This process would be he didn't want to go where the Lord was telling him to go. But this is the Lord's will, because in this he will do what? The outcome will be he will glorify God. 
by his death. Friends, you see what this tells us? We're told today that the only way you can glorify God is if every one of your prayers is answered. If you have enough faith, every one of your prayers will be answered and that'll glorify God. If you have complete favor of the Lord on your life, which means you have the best of everything and all you want, then your life will glorify God because that's how God gets glory when everything is going good for you. Folks, I want to tell you something. Only in America do people believe that foolishness. Go to the rest of the world and tell our brothers and sisters in Christ that. Tell the followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years that the only way you can be blessed, if you have enough faith, everything's going to turn out for you. The Lord God has determined that by even our struggles and our pain, and yes, if it be as well, even by our death, he will bring glory to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not an easy road. Jesus warned about the broad road, the easy way, the way most of the people are going. He said that heads to hell. But the one who follows me, it's not easy. It'll be challenging. It means picking up your cross. But you're going where I'm going if you follow me, and I'm going home. I'm going back to my father, and you follow me. I'll make the decisions about the road you take but I promise you, I will get you to my father's house. Oh, Peter, he's so hard-headed. He, he, the last scene here, he still doesn't get it. It's still, he's struggling with Peter. He's struggling with old Simon. He needs one more lesson. So verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved calling them. Who's this? This is John. He's the youngest. He's, he's, he's following along. And Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? <laughs> I don't like what you just said about me. Uh, what about him? And the Lord said, if I wills that he remains until I come, what's that to you? You follow me, Peter. It's like, that's none of your business. You follow me. It's hard for us to learn that lesson, isn't it? Peter is so full of... Self-determination. I, I haven't seen a guy like him since I saw the image of a guy whose face I was shaving this morning. Most self-focused guy I know. Guy, the man in the mirror. Here's the lesson. The lesson is this. We cannot follow Jesus if we're focusing on others. You can't find, follow Jesus if you're focusing on others. Friends, listen. You can't follow Jesus today if you're focusing on people who've hurt you in the past. You just can't. 
If you're focusing on people who've hurt you in the past, disappointed you in the past, people who've been unkind or untruthful about you, misused you, it could be family members, loved ones, it could be brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're focusing on people who have wronged you in the past, you can't follow Jesus freely in the present, right? Or if you, while you're living right now, you're focusing on others, what they have, what you don't have, what's going on in their family, what's going on in your family. You measure themselves, yourself by them. You can't follow Jesus focusing like that. To follow Jesus, you've got to focus on Jesus. Now, friends, did you see yourself in the story? Where are you in the story this morning? Some of you, maybe, are you in the boat, frustrated with your ingenuity, ability, and activity? You've been working your plan, but it ain't working. And the Lord is saying to you, how's that working for you? How about we trade seats? I pilot, you get in the right seat. Oh, oh really, we ought to be back in economy all the way back to the back of the plane, right? Maybe God's brought you to a charcoal fire. You're here in church, but in your mind, the Lord's brought you to something in your life where you've really denied him in thought, action, deed. You, you've denied him, and he's brought you right there. And he's, he's speaking to you this morning. Are, are, you going to let, are, are we going to deal with this? Are you going to be free from this? Do you love me? Or maybe some of you here are on the path and the Lord is saying, listen, don't focus on others. You need to take your focus off what your father did to you, your mother did to you. You need to take your focus off what people have done to you. You need to take your focus off others, what they have and you don't. You need to take your focus off that. You put your focus on me. I will lead you in the path that you should go. I will get you to my father's house. Now follow me. Lord, I pray now for us as we come to the closing minutes here. I pray, Lord, that our, our heart's desire will be, lead me, Lord, lead me. I pray over my brothers and sisters as I ask them to pray for me. Oh, Lord, you know what we need. You know who we are. You know where we are. And you love us so. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to trust your heart to rise and follow you. I pray for people today that this day they will rise and follow Jesus as a disciple. They will turn from their self-life and turn to Christ and trust Jesus today, this very hour. They call upon you. They surrender to you. Lord, make it so. For Christians who've gotten off the path, Christians who've gotten disappointed, discouraged, oh God, I pray, meet them right now where they are, in that boat, at the charcoal fire, on the path, meet them. Meet me, Father. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you. May our prayer be, he leads me. This is my blessed thought. 
In Jesus' name.